Welcome to Todd's World. Thanks for joining us. I'm Todd Allen. Today we have Witness Episode 5, Dreams and Dreamers. This is an original audio fiction series about the end times written and performed by me. As always, the companion podcast to this episode drops on Wednesday, and Will and Carrie join me to explore both the dreams and the dreamers in this episode, along with whatever else comes up. It's a rollicking good time. Also, check out Insurrection if you haven't yet. All of the episodes for the first season of Insurrection are available, and you'll be caught up for Insurrection Season 2 coming later this summer. And the paperback for Insurrection is available on Amazon, too. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Todd's World 2023, also on Truth Social at The Todd Allen Show. You can find clips of the show and share them with your friends. Also look for us at Todd's World on Substack. Go to toddsworld.net and check out all the cool Insurrection and Witness merch. If you enjoy the show, tell your friends and family about it. Anything we can do to get the word out. This is a work of fiction. All names, characters, businesses, places, and events, even those based on real people or events, are entirely fictional. The product of the author's vivid and compelling imagination. Any resemblance to actual persons living or dead is purely coincidental and fictional. Now, for the fifth episode of Witness. Episode 5, Dreams and Dreamers The dreams began then. Lucas returned to the cabin in time for dinner, but begged off telling Elle he was tired from his walk and felt like going to bed early. Elle wondered what exactly had happened on his walk, but he was on his way to bed before she could find out. He would tell her in the morning, he told himself, after he'd had the night to sleep on it. Perhaps he could make more sense of his impromptu dinner in the woods with the creator of the universe after a good night's sleep. He fell asleep almost as soon as his head hit the pillow, and sometime later he began to dream. Some of the images would remain with him for a time, lodged in his conscious mind like small shards of chicken bone left over from the soup of his subconscious. Many of the details would fade in the harsh light of day. But Lucas was not the only one dreaming that night, or the night after, or the night after that. The Spirit of God had been roused, and the sower was planting his seeds in the minds of the chosen. Claire Westmore arrived home late that night. She had worked the closing shift at Randy's Restaurant and Bar in Crystal Falls and driven the 45 minutes back home at 1.30 in the morning. She would be 18 in a few months, and she couldn't wait to be an adult. Not that she had all that many restrictions on her life at present. 
On the heels of the vanishing of her father and brothers, Claire's world had collapsed around her. Everything she had thought solid turned wobbly. She had grown up going to church and youth group, but with her family ravaged by the vanishing, she quit going to church altogether. The church her family had attended only held on for another year anyway. By then, too many parishioners had disappeared, and those left couldn't look at each other every Sunday and endure the constant reminder of all they had lost. Besides, the pastors and many of the deacons were gone. There was nothing left of the church she had once known and loved. Her mother clung to Claire in the early weeks after her father's and brother's disappearance. And if she should have clung back, she didn't. She hated her mother for the clinging, which to Claire felt like weakness. She also hated her mother for being left behind, and she hated herself for the same thing. She turned 16 four months after their disappearance, and as there were now plenty of vehicles sitting idle in the driveway, she began driving right away. She found other bitter teenagers like herself, and together they drank and smoked their hurt and grief away. And when the alcohol and weed quit working, she turned to pills, anything to take the raw edge off the pain. Lynn had no answer for her daughter's anger. She had largely given up herself. It wasn't fair to Claire. She should have been stronger, but should-haves didn't matter anymore. She had been left behind. There was no going forward only existing from day to day. So Claire and Lynn drifted apart, and the family home, once full of life and laughter, became little more than an empty house haunted by ghosts of a past no one wanted to remember. Hope had fled, and what remained was only the shell of a family that once was and now wasn't. Still, Claire didn't delaminate completely. The Protestant work ethic had been too long ingrained. She mostly kept up with her classes, and she went to work first at McDonald's and then at Randy's, which was a long drive, but she didn't mind the 45 minutes of quiet to and from the busy restaurant. She wouldn't have said it gave her time to think, although it did. The commute to and from Randy's forced her to come to terms with life as it was and she had less time to fill with all of the distractions she chased in her free time. She usually hit her pen on and off for most of the drive, and by the time she got to Crystal Falls, she was ready for a six-hour shift of serving the locals. Then she hit the pen again all the way home. Regardless, she had no hope or expectations of putting the pieces of her life back together. She only wanted to keep absolute despair at bay as best she could. That night, her shift had been busy, and she was tired by the time she got home, and she was asleep almost as soon as she laid down. An hour later, the dream started. In her dream, she was driving to Randy's again. The pine forest rolled by as she drove in silence, and then she realized she wasn't alone. Thomas, the younger of her brothers, rode shotgun in the passenger seat next to her, and he was hitting her pen, inhaling for a long few seconds, then blowing out a large cloud of white vapor. To her knowledge, Thomas had never smoked weed. 
How are you holding up, sis? He asked when he finally spoke. Claire wanted to look at him, to see if he was real, but she was afraid, and she kept her eyes on the road. I don't know, Thomas. It's hard. Thomas nodded and took another hit of the pen. When he spoke again, he coughed out the words. Yes, it's, it's been hard for you. Hard for Mom, too. Claire only nodded and kept driving. She wanted to ask, and finally she worked up the courage. Where did you go? Thomas turned and looked at the passing wilderness out the passenger window. I don't know, he said after a few moments. It's hard to explain. Claire just sighed. More unanswered questions. Even in her dreams, the questions haunted her. Thomas turned back to her. It's time for you to shake off the questions and the bad dreams and get moving again. Claire glanced at him sideways. He looked the same as he always had. Where am I supposed to go? What am I supposed to do? Her eyes welled with tears and she looked back to the road. I feel like the world is a broken clock, stuck on 4.45 in the afternoon. There's nothing to move on to. Thomas shook his head. For a time, maybe it was stuck like that, but no more. Things are moving again. God is moving. God and I aren't exactly on speaking terms, she said. I know. That's why I'm here. To give you a nudge. A nudge? Claire asked, repeating the phrase. Or a push. Whatever it takes. God's witness has arrived. Soon he will begin his ministry. You must go with him. Thomas sat quietly in the passenger seat, watching the world roll by the windshield as he spoke. I don't know what you're talking about, Claire said. Mom does, he replied simply. She hasn't put it all together yet, but she's working on it. She needs your help. Claire thought of her mom's hollowed-out eyes and shook her head again. Mom doesn't need any help from me. You're wrong, Claire. Winter is coming. You need to leave before the snow flies. Head south. With him. With who? Claire asked, twisting in her seat now to look closely at her brother, who had vanished along with so many others. Thomas looked in her eyes, and she knew it was only a dream. The witness. Mom knows. Talk to her. Go to him. Claire saw movement in her peripheral vision, and she looked back at the road just in time to see a large black bear ambling across. She hit the brakes and turned the wheel too sharply, and the car twisted in the road and began to roll. Claire screamed just before the car hit the bear, and then Thomas was gone, and she was gone with him, and she woke up in her bed shaking and panting, her heart racing in her chest. It was only a dream, but it had shaken her up badly. And by the time she got back to sleep an hour later, she had resolved to talk to her mom the next morning and find out what she knew about this witness person. Bruce Kroll passed out that night in a strange apartment with a young woman he'd never met before that evening. They met at the Shoreliner earlier that night. The Shoreliner was a decent-sized bar on the strip by the lakeshore, 
not far from Port Clinton, Ohio. Thousand-ton freighters rolled slowly by offshore in Lake Erie, headed west to Toledo or Detroit, or east to Cleveland and beyond. And many of the patrons at the small tables watched the lights out on the lake while they ate and drank and then drank some more. The bar didn't face the windows, but Bruce still watched the lights on the lake in the mirrored glass behind the rows of half-empty liquor bottles. Once upon a time, Bruce would have considered the bottles half-full, but those days had since passed. The whole world felt half-empty these days. In another once upon a time, Bruce had been the lead pastor of a large, successful, multi-site church of the evangelical non-denominational variety so popular in the decades preceding the vanishing. Crossroads Church. The logo had employed a nice little cross between the words cross and roads, and they had it emblazoned on hoodies and ball caps and t-shirts sold at a kiosk in the lobby by a designated member of the Dream Team, whose unique, God-given gifting in life had been determined to be hawking hip church merch on Sunday mornings between services. Bruce had given the sermons at the main campus, and the live video feed had been beamed to other campuses. Either the setup and takedown varieties meeting at local middle school gymnasiums, or the permanent brick-and-mortar types occupying abandoned warehouses and factories littering the Rust Belt like fossils from another time, when America actually made things like steel and cars and appliances. Those days also had since passed. Bruce's pastoring days were behind him now, along with his hip church merch days. Crossroads no longer existed. As a going concern, it had gone the way of most other churches in the wake of the vanishing. Churches like Crossroads, built as they were on continual growth and popularity, were especially susceptible to the ravages of the vanishing. Lacking 150 or 200 years of history and tradition turned out to be a fatal flaw in the face of an honest-to-goodness apocalyptic event which couldn't be neatly tucked into the folds of the Revelation charts and movies. Turns out, when all the easy answers lay pulverized on the concrete, like Humpty at the bottom of the Empire State Building, Bruce found he had no inclination to put his faith together again. Broken faith remained broken, he had found, no matter what all the king's horses and all the king's men said from within their tiny screens. The young woman who fell asleep in his arms 30 minutes before he fell asleep in hers had approached him at the bar the same way most people approached him these days. She had been sitting two bar stools down, and it took her a while to place him. From the corner of his eye, he had noticed her glance his way four or five times, working it out. He looked familiar, but the setting was off. Finally, it clicked. He knew when it did. He also knew how it went from here. After fortifying her courage with one more drink, she would turn to him, lean over, and say, Pastor Bruce? He turned and answered as he nearly always did. Guilty as charged. Then he smiled his charming pastor smile and went to work. Only instead of wooing the faithful back to Jesus from a stage perched five feet above the floor, 
he would woo this beautiful young woman into bed. She really wasn't much more than a girl, if he was honest with himself, but her body was all woman, and fortunately, he had quit the pesky habit of being honest with himself some years back. When she leaned over, her round, full breasts smiled up at him from the low-cut top, wrangling them together into a bundle of perky blessedness. And Bruce smiled right back. I can't believe it, she said, sliding over one stool closer to him. P.B. bellied up to a bar looking sad and lonely. P.B. had been one of the quirky ways he had gone about being folksy and down-to-earth with his parishioners. Pastor Bruce sounded a little too formal on the ears for a hip new church in the land of tiny screens. Just call me P.B., he had told the congregation. His wife being Jennifer only added to the fun. And soon, P.B. and Jay began being bandied about as shorthand for the telegenic pastor and his made-for-social-media wife. Their family Instagram handle was P.B. and Jay with kids. If he thought about it long these days, he felt the urge to vomit over the vapid banality of it all. But back in the glory days, it all worked. My family attended the West Lake campus, she said. I grew up in CR Kids and then CR Visionaries. I spent my whole life watching you up on the screen, and now I'm sitting at a bar drinking with you. The small world circular nature of life had her properly flummoxed. She giggled at the prospect as she raised her drink, and Bruce enjoyed how her breast trembled when she laughed. He had kept his lecherous horniness largely under wraps for the duration of his ministry, had even convinced himself during certain periods that the old devil in his pants had finally been conquered for good. But the old man would invariably rise again, if not to his feet, at least to his elbow and the impure thoughts about the buxom young church maidens flowering into womanhood would return in force. After Jenny and the boys vanished, it was the natural road down which to turn for what little comfort he could find. He had been young when they started the church, too young by many Christian leaders' reckoning, and the church had grown too fast. At Crossroads Peak, just before the vanishing started, Bruce was only 41. At the time, he felt he was getting old. But seven years later, now pushing 50, he understood how little he had understood. Old wasn't a number, but a mindset. He was quite certain he had once preached that drivel in an effort to motivate the faithful. But the knowledge meant more to him now. He felt like he had aged 30 years since the vanishing. His life was behind him, like so many others. His life had vanished, and now he was stuck like a skip in a record, existing through each day, hoping for a fresh piece of tail to rev his engines for a few hours before he got back to the business of waiting to die. Her name was Brenna, and that was just fine with Bruce. They drank together for a few hours, getting properly lubed up. Then Brenna invited him back to her apartment. She was ravenous as girls in their early 20s tend to be with older men who have paid attention enough to know how to satisfy a woman. And Bruce did his best to keep up. The pill he had taken earlier helped, and they managed three rounds. Bruce found he was proud of his performance, though more than once during their coupling the young woman had called him PB, 
which Bruce found disturbing, though not disturbing enough to stop the festivities. Just before he finally nodded off for the night, he looked at Brenna sleeping and marveled at her tight, smooth body. That would change soon enough with husbands and kids and PTA meetings. But on that night, she was still perfect, and PB was glad he had the pleasure of enjoying her. For two or three hours, he forgot what his life had devolved into, and two or three hours of fleeting pleasure was a far cry better than nothing at all. He didn't know he was asleep at first, but he was sitting in the sand, and in front of him the blue-green waters of Lake Erie filled the horizon. Brenna was gone. The beach was empty. One-foot swells rolled in off the lake, breaking on the sand in a gentle, steady rhythm. Far out on the lake, a large freighter passed, churning its slow, plodding way west. Bruce lost track of time staring out at the lake when he first noticed the small shape in the distance. It was too far away to see clearly, but as Bruce watched, fixated on the rising shape in the distance, a certainty grew inside him. The shape was larger now, and clearer. It was the shape of a woman, and though she was still a long way off, he knew she was coming to him, walking to him through the waves. And though he couldn't see her, he knew her, and his eyes filled with tears. As the woman on the water drew ever closer, Bruce saw her long wavy hair dancing in the breeze, blowing across the lake. His heart ached inside his chest. The pain and loss rose in his throat. He rose to his feet and moved close to the water's edge. The small waves lapped at his feet, but the water was warm and inviting on his exposed toes. And all the while, the shape on the water grew as the woman made her steady, relentless journey through the waves. While she was still too far away to call, her voice echoed through his mind. Bruce, she whispered. Just one word, repeated again and again, his name on her lips. Bruce. He knew her voice. Six years had passed, but he knew her like she had only been gone a day. Jennifer had finally returned. His wife was walking on the water to him, and she was calling his name across the waves. The tears began to fall then. He had missed her so much, missed all of them so, so much. His wife and sons had been his whole world, whether he knew it or not at the time, and when they vanished, his world fell apart. But now she was back, coming to him, and he waded out into the water, leaving the beach behind. Suddenly she was there, right in front of him, Jennifer, her long blonde hair moving with the wind, and she was smiling, her eyes filled with the light of a thousand sunsets. Bruce fell to his knees and the warm water pooled around his waist. Jenny. He had so much to say, so many things to tell her, but the words were gone. Her name was all he could speak. Bruce, she said, still smiling. Then Bruce remembered the young girl he'd spent the evening with, and shame shadowed his face. He hung his head and found he was crying. I'm so sorry, Jenny for everything, everything I've turned into. I just, 
Words failed him again. He felt her hand on his arm pulling him to his feet. He looked closely at her. Her eyes held no judgment, only love and joy. I know, she said. All the doubts and fears and shame that haunt you, I know. God knows. It's been hard for you since we left. She touched his face and wiped away some tears. Her hand was warm and soft. He had missed her touch. When you and the boys vanished, everything fell apart all at once, and I fell apart with it, he said to his wife in the dream. I stepped down from pastoring within six months, and the church closed its doors for good eight months later. We had enough saved I didn't have to work. Besides, there was nothing I wanted to do. The only brief moments of happiness I could find, his voice trailed off. She said she knew, and he believed her. Jennifer was still smiling, so close to him. It's time to move on from all that now. God is moving again. This is the beginning of the end, and you have a part to play. Bruce laughed then, but there was no joy behind it. It was small and hollow, full of doubt. I think God has better options than a broken-down former megachurch pastor. Whatever faith I once had is gone. I'm of no use to him or anyone else. Be that as it may, he's called you. I can assure you God knows all the ins and outs of PB far better than you do. You preached it yourself, Bruce, how many times? God only uses broken people. Bruce sighed. I'm definitely, but his wife, who had just walked across the water to him, touched his lips with her hand and stopped him. Then she spoke again. My time here is almost gone. He has sent his witness. You must go to him. Time is short. Leave tomorrow. Head north. The Spirit will guide you. Learn to listen and trust him again. We will be together again soon, but you have much to do in the meantime. Bruce touched his wife's arm, and her eyes danced with the light of a thousand stars. I don't understand, Jenny. Nothing you're saying makes any sense. What witness? Jenny took a deep breath and exhaled slowly. The love and care she had always had for him shone in her eyes. In his time, Bruce. Now go. Leave. Find the witness. She kissed him then, and love and joy spilled out from her and enveloped him, and he lost himself in that kiss until the world faded around him, and he woke up in a room he didn't recognize. He rolled over, and Brenna was there, naked and beautiful and sleeping soundly. Bruce rose from her bed and walked over to the window, looking across a wide parking lot at the bright lights of a Walmart and a large gas station and fast food chains lining the road. His face was wet with tears. He'd been crying in his sleep. He looked out past the lights of civilization to the dark sky beyond. He knew he would leave, just as Jenny told him to do. And as he searched the night sky in vain for the light of any stars, he wondered where his journey would take him. The heavy steel door closed behind him with a strong thud, and suddenly 
the prison that had been his world for the better part of 10 years no longer was. Tito Garza was a free man, whatever that meant, and in the shadow of the concrete jungle he had inhabited for almost a decade, he turned to face the street a hundred yards away. The midday sun shone down bright and hot on the pavement in the distance, and Tito walked through the shadows toward the light. He had no idea he had been up for parole. He hadn't heard from his lawyer in two years, and he hadn't sat for any parole board hearings answering their list of questions rattled off in the mindless, humorless monotone of bureaucratic cogs in the prison industrial machine. When Patty, the prison guard he was most friendly with, walked up to him and told him to pack his shit, Tito just stared at him dumbfounded. Patty was Irish. His thinning hair was dirty blonde, and his skin looked almost pink to Tito. Parole was granted. You're leaving. So get your shit, amigo. You're flying the coop, Patty had told him. Turned out, Pink Patty was right. Tito walked onto the sidewalk next to the street and into the bright Texas sunshine. He looked up the street one way and then the other, and for the first time in ten years realized he could turn whichever way he chose and walk to the horizon if he wanted. As the weight of freedom descended on his mind, he felt disoriented in the sunshine, with no bars or razor wires surrounding him. He blinked a few times in the sunlight, but the vertigo of open spaces threatened to overwhelm him. A loud honk from an automobile brought him back to earth in his overloaded senses. An older RV waited in the gravel lot across the street, and an arm stuck out of the driver's side window waving at him. Tito recognized the RV from the dream he had forgotten the night before. He remembered the dream had seemed important when he was in it, but it faded like all his dreams when he woke up in the 8 by 12 foot concrete cell he shared with Tommy, his latest cellmate. There had been a woman in his dream as well, an older woman with a happy face and large breasts which made her seem bigger around than she actually was. Then the woman from his dream climbed out of the RV across the street and raised her hand to him again, waving and smiling. Lacking any other options, Tito crossed the street to the woman in her RV. He had been in the joint for nine years. He had carried out a hit on a rival club, killing four people, but the ballistics report was sketchy, so he pled to a few gun charges, a couple nonviolent felonies that earned him 18 months. If he had kept his shit together and played it cool, he probably would have been out in a year. But Tito wasn't that kind of cat. He had a hole full of rage right in the center of his soul. And when the wrong fellow inmate crossed him, Tito beat the man to death with a rolling mop bucket. That little trick turned 18 months into 20 years. And Tito settled in for his long rehabilitation. Until today. Susan Kilroy held out her hand to the tall, dark man approaching her. She noted the tattooed sleeves lining both of his heavily muscled arms and the thin white scar on his left temple. While she smiled her big Italian smile, his lips were tight and suspicion clouded his eyes. Hi, I'm Susan, but everybody calls me Susie, she said as brightly as she could. The man took her hand and shook it 
Tito, he said. Tito, Susie said, repeating his name. Her father had taught her to always say a person's name back to them upon introduction. He claimed this helped cement the name with the face for long-term memory. You look exactly like you did in my dream. Did you see me in a dream too? Tito nodded. Yeah. Susie nodded back with him, still smiling, but more conspiratorial. Weird, right? Tito looked behind him at the prison, then back to Susie. Definitely weird. Do you have a bag or anything? She asked. Tito held out his empty arms. I left everything at the Hilton. And finally, he cracked a small smile. Susie laughed, and the sound of her laughter made Tito happy inside in a way he couldn't remember feeling since his grandmother died. We'll stop along the way and get you fixed up with some fresh clothes and such. Ready to hit the road? Tito looked up at the metal RV beside them, baking in the sun. Where are we going? he asked. North, Susie said, just like they told us in the dream. Tito nodded and walked to the passenger side door and climbed in. Susie walked back around to the driver's side and climbed in herself. Tito was checking out the interior of the RV. I'll show you around once we stop and set up camp for the night, Susie said. Tito just nodded again in reply. Susie started the engine, put the big RV into drive, and they were off. After a few miles and twists and turns, Susie got onto an entrance ramp and merged into the traffic heading north on I-35 when Tito spoke again. I don't remember the dream, he said. I know I had it, and I remember you being in the dream with me, but that's all. Susie just looked at him for a moment. Then the big toothy smile found her face again and she turned back to the highway. Well, you're here, and I'm here, and we're not dreaming now so I guess we'll sort it out as we go. Tito looked out the side window at the passing ground. Was there something about a witness, he asked? Yes, Susie answered. Something about a witness of some kind. We're off to find him. Tito turned back to Susie and considered her for a time. She must have been in her 70s, 40 years his senior. Her breasts were so big she had to reach around them to grasp the large steering wheel and Tito smiled at the image. Then he turned his eyes back to the road ahead. We're off, he said, repeating Susie's words. He closed his eyes and leaned his head back on the headrest and took a deep breath of free non-prison air. Well, Susie, wherever we're off to, it has to be better than where I've been. You and me both, she replied without further explanation. And together... They settled in for a long ride.